All right, back in Ephesians 4, verse 30. It's always a challenge somewhat preaching through books of the Bible. What particular speed? You know, we want to get through the book. We want to cover sections large enough to where we don't forget everything because we spend years and years in one particular epistle. And there's lots of the Bible to go through. Obviously, we want to cover as much as we can. But at the same time, there's some passages I think it's very, very beneficial for us to just slow down and really, really chew on what's being said. As I meditated on Ephesians 4.30 this week, I was very moved in my own soul to have us slow down a little and just consider what that particular verse is saying. What are the implications? Last time, our topic was from verses 23 to 29. What we were talking about is putting on the new man. And uh, in addition to being theological, I hope that was immensely a practical emphasis. If you've never gone through some kind of extended treatment on what that means to put off and put on, how is that done? Something that's utterly critical to our everyday Christian life. In fact, at the beginning last week, I made the statement that I guarantee this affects every one of you here. And I'm sure those of you that were here, you had ample opportunity all this week to face those kind of battles and choose what you were going to do. Uh, Temptations came, trials came, battles in your thought life, battles of speech, battles of temper. And in every one of those cases, you either kept on the old man and yielded your indwelling nature your sin nature, or you put on the new man and believe God and yielded to Him. And once again, we do not fight sin successfully by focusing merely on not sinning. Every choice and every temptation, we positively kneel before one of two thrones. Either we believe our seductive natures and that sin has to win, or we And we yield to that, or we believe exactly what God says about us, regardless of how powerful the battle is. We believe we're dead to sin, Romans 6. We believe sin no longer wears a crown on its head, that its dominion's been broken. And then we actively yield unto God. So, uh, putting on the new man isn't something done once for life. It's not even something done once per day. It's the wrong picture. I think sometimes we erroneously think, I had my devotions, I put the new man on, I'm good to go. And when we fall flat on our face before lunch, we wonder what the deal is. Well, putting on the new man is something that happens continually throughout each day. That's really the idea behind walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, step by step by step. It's not merely saying no to sin defensively, but it's saying yes to God. It's active. It's forward. It's gaining new ground. We like to sing the song, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. And largely how that's accomplished is developing as a Christian our habit, our choice of saying yes to God. Yes to God. It's like you think you're walking. Every step is yes. 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 It's not don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. It's yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And then we spent some time developing the fact that the Bible consistently teaches replacement when it comes to wrong behavior and thoughts. It's not merely stop doing this, but it's replace whatever this is with something good. And that's a theme that's repeated over and over and over in this passage and through all the New Testament. In fact, you can find that all through Scripture. The last time, it's don't just stop your deceptive speech. Duct tape doesn't fix the problem. You replace it with truth. Don't merely try to stop your sinful anger. Either have righteous anger or deal with it a different way. There's a reason James says, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You replace thieving habits with labor and generosity. You replace destructive speech with speech that builds edifies, ministers grace to the hearers. And multiple other passages. Ephesians 4, uh, Philippians 4 tells us not to worry. Well, if that's all we're told, we're not helped. Don't worry. 
How'd that go? We're not told stop worrying. We're told stop worrying, but replace that with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And then the peace of God keeps your hearts and minds. We're to replace wrong time usage with deliberately investing time in that which is God-honoring. You cannot just leave a vacuum. Okay, That's a biblical principle all throughout. Now let me say this, just in case somebody gets the idea this is some sort of self-help therapy that will help society at large. Some of what I just said, you say, boy, I can share that with my lost neighbor. I can just help him replace. Let me repeat this. Until a person is born again, until a person's given supernatural life through believing in Christ, until the power over the old nature is broken, all they can do is replace one idol with another. That's why self-help in and of itself is powerless. You can replace one habit with a different one, but it really doesn't change your relation to God at all. It's only when the chains of sin have been broken by the power of God that supernatural change can really occur. That's really the glory of what Romans 6 says. That we're dead to sin. Now I know the experience. We don't feel very dead to it. None of you felt dead to sin this week. I guarantee it. But theologically, we know when we came to Christ, that was nailed to the cross. And the only power that nature has is what I give it. And the only reason sin still occurs is because I love it. And I allow myself to be deceived by it. And I choose to do it. But right in the middle of this discussion, this statement in verse 30 is inserted. I mean, right in the middle of all these things we're commanded not to do. And to do instead. Right in the middle of that, we come to verse 30. And I'll tell you, the longer I'm a Christian, the more times I think about this verse, the more arresting it becomes to me. And I, I really hope I can illustrate some of why that is. Look at what it says in verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let's say we were going to do a group exercise this morning, and uh, we were just going to go around the room, and we're going to list all the biblical reasons we can think of why we shouldn't sin. And we could start with the really basic, uh, we're told not to. Fair enough. Because we as Christians are no longer chained to, we don't have to sin. But going beyond that, how about we phrase it this way? What happens when you and I choose to sin? Or... Uh, what are some of the effects of sin? What are some of the reasons not to? And uh, we survey the Scriptures and the catalogs of our mind and we start to list reasons. Why shouldn't I sin? Well, a deliberate unrepentant sin breaks fellowship with God. That's one good reason. Amos says, can two walk together except they be agreed? John says, if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. A choice to sin is like pushing a tree while you're standing on ice. You move. A tree doesn't. You choose to sin. You stray from God. He stays right where He was. Sin hinders prayer. David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. A choice to sin hinders God's guidance in our life. Romans 12 bears that out. Even the Old Testament. We all know, probably most of us, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. And He shall direct thy paths. What's the prerequisite to He shall direct thy paths? In all my ways acknowledging Him. Not hanging on to known iniquity. Uh, deliberate sin removes peace. It hinders fellowship with others. I mean, unity and closeness, scripturally, are only possible when sin is properly dealt with. Sin can make me lose my sense of security. Not lose my salvation. 
But you can prove it biblically in the New Testament that a choice to sin deliberately over time will wear away at your sense of confidence that you belong to God. It doesn't take away salvation, but it will erode at the sense of it. Loss of rewards, loss of opportunities to minister. I mean, some ministry doors may shut permanently. Paul himself said he's worried he'd become a castaway. He wasn't going to lose his salvation, but he didn't want to be shelved by God. Paul, even in his own titanic uh, Christian life, he actually was guided by the Holy Spirit to record the possibility of himself being shelved. I mean, we can sin in such a way that some ministry doors actually permanently shut on this earth. There's shame that will come at the judgment seat of Christ. There's the fact that a choice to sin makes the next choice that much easier. We talked last time about sinful anger in a home. He says it gives place to the devil. It actually gives a beachhead, a fortified place inside your own life to Satan when you refuse to deal with wrongful anger. And uh, when we make a choice to sin, it strengthens the flesh and it makes it that much easier to fail next time. We could talk of God's discipline. That comes in many forms. And it's true of every Christian person faces some kind of discipline. Hebrews 12 is God's woodshed. It's even possible to be cut off early because of continued sinful behavior. John says there is a sin unto death. And there's many examples of that in the New Testament. Now, that's not all of the reasons. Now, stick with me here. We're going to a very deliberate place in all of this exercise. That's not all of the reasons not to sin. But that's at least a good start. Now, let's say furthermore in our group exercise, we're going to categorize these into three different groups, uh, which I think can be done rather easily. Now, I have purposefully, in the list we just went through, I have purposefully only mentioned category one. Just to illustrate what I'm saying. All right, so up here, we're going to put three categories. What happens when I choose to sin? Okay, category one. How my sin affects me. Now, everything I just mentioned is biblical, but fits into that category. That whole list does. All right, how about here we have category two? How my sin affects others, causing them to stumble. And me setting a poor example that weakens them, causing them to think wrongly about God, and causing them pain, heartache, suffering, losing opportunity to really help them. I mean, I, I can't really preach the gospel, or you and I can't really sustain brothers and sisters in Christ in their trials when we ourselves are knowingly out of fellowship with God. All right, so how, how my sin affects me, how my sin affects others. What's category three? How my sin affects God. I can just hear somebody saying, at least silently, what do you mean my sin affects God? Isn't He immovable? Isn't He all-powerful and unchangeable and timeless? Doesn't He know the end from the beginning? Doesn't He escape heartache by virtue of the fact He perfectly knows the future? I mean, part of the difficulty with our own heartaches is we didn't know it was coming a lot of times. God is never surprised by events. I mean, doesn't God just discipline and crush and even incinerate whatever creature crosses certain lines? So, how can my sin as a finite creature made out of dust, living down here on this terrestrial ball, how can that really affect him personally? You see, that's precisely why I say this passage is so astounding. Do you notice what it does not say? 
It doesn't say don't anger the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say don't frustrate the Holy Spirit. Don't annoy, don't disappoint, don't embarrass, don't alienate. And we could go on and on with what it doesn't say. It actually uses the phrase, grieve not the Holy Spirit. What is grief? Well, I know human nature. I think many of you, right as I ask that question, you're immediately thinking of a situation or person, even as I say that. Most of us would say, well, grief is best understood by experience, not verbal definition. Words fail to describe this miserable condition, but let's try anyhow. If you believe Noah Webster, many people do, Grief is the pain of mind produced by loss, misfortune, injury, or evils of any kind. It is sorrow and regret. In fact, the particular Greek word here used, grieve not the Holy Spirit, that word actually means distress, to be in heaviness, to be full of sorrow. Just a few of the other New Testament usages, I'll give them to you. It gives us a fairly rounded picture of what the word means. Matthew 26, 22. It's used to describe the reaction of the disciples. You can picture it a little, can't you? Here they are in the upper room. And here this one that they're convinced is the Savior of the world. There's only 12 of them in the room with him. And he looks at them and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. And uh, it says they were exceeding sorrowful. Same word. And they all start asking, Is it I? John 21, 17, it's used of Peter. The stinging pain he felt when the Lord asked him three times in a row, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? It says Peter was grieved. Not annoyed, not frustrated. It wasn't the repetition of the question that bothered him. It was what he did when he failed that bothered him. It was the recollection of the fact he said, I'm not going to deny you. And he failed. John 16, 20, that same word for grief from Ephesians 4.30, the same Greek word, is used of the sorrow that the disciples would feel when Jesus was crucified and buried. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 of the anguish that comes to those left behind when a person dies. In fact, they were told, don't sorrow, same word for grief, don't sorrow as those that have no hope. It's okay for funerals to be sad. But a funeral of a Christian is a coronation. It's a graduation to glory. In 1 Peter 1.6, same word is used of the heaviness of believers facing sustained persecution. And think about our own life for a minute. What people and things in your life have the potential to cause you the most pain? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. Those that are closest and most precious to you. I mean, how about a spouse? Does a husband or wife have the ability to cause you pain? Hey, Adam wasn't kidding when he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. There's a oneness and a unity there that no other relationship can enter into. And in a way, when we go to that wedding altar, we're both handed a very, very sharp sword. And with that sword, you can build and you can defend and you can protect or you can slice to pieces. How about our children? Our offspring came from us. We nurture them from total helplessness. 
We have hopes and dreams and ambitions for them. We'd sacrifice for them. We would die for them. And when that's not reciprocated, or when they hurt, or when they're taken, it hurts. How about close friends? Some of us know what betrayal feels like. Probably most of us. To a lesser degree, how about take precious or prized possessions? Something that you paid a very dear price for. Or uh, something of great sentimental value. Uh, Here's a World War II veteran, veteran, and he has this little collection of medals. Knowing his generation, he's not going to talk about it much. It's not the material value of those that matters. It's what that represents. The blood of comrades. Times he thought he was almost dead. The price of freedom. Or take a, a mother with an old photo album. I mean, you couldn't go and sell the thing for five bucks. But it's priceless. Or take other reminders, sentimental things of something that happened. One story that comes to mind, we were down visiting my grandmother in Arizona several years ago. And uh, I hadn't seen her in years. And she shows me this picture on the wall and she tells me the story about it. They would found this picture of her father, who of course is long since dead. She didn't even know it existed. But somebody had found this and framed it for her. And she explained to me how she burst out in tears, just weeping uncontrollably when she saw that picture. Enter our family. I don't even remember which child it was, but somebody jumped on something, which hit something, which hit something. It was sort of, you know the game of mousetrap, when all these things have to, it was like a game of mousetrap, and eventually it hits this decorative ladder, which tips over, and what do you think it goes through? Right through the glass. <laughs> Horrified is an understatement. Now, Grandma had left the room for about three minutes when this happened, and she comes walking in all jolly. I said, we have a <clears throat> problem. <clears throat> now, I'll tell you, thankfully, it didn't damage the photo. I'll tell you, I was at that glass store and nothing flat. And that thing was fixed. But those sentimental things that may not be worth much monetarily, but what they represent. And when they get marred or when they get damaged or when they get stolen away, it causes grief. If somebody loses everything in a house fire, assuming the people escape, what are they most bothered about? It's the sentimental things. Now, why is it we have such a hard time processing grief as something applied directly to God Himself? Why is that? Why is it that we have a fundamental disconnect when we talk about that concept? It is so hard for us to think of a God that experiences that. Well, I think there's a couple reasons. When you and I experience grief, sorrow, heaviness, anguish, whatever you want to call it, it's a deep, deeply painful reminder of two axioms of life. Number one is that we are... Vulnerable. To open ourselves up to love, to care, to have closeness, to minister to others, by necessity opens us up to pain. There is no escape. But axiom number two that grief reminds us of in our own life, it's a reminder that we cannot control circumstances. We can't. We look in our humanness, don't we? And we say, if only I had the power to stop that illness, that accident, that conversation, that choice that person's making, if I could stop it, I would. And part of what makes it so difficult for us is we can't. We're powerless. Now, what are we to think when we're told that our sin actually causes him grief, anguish, pain, 
heaviness, sorrow, distress. Well, obviously, it's not that he's somehow relinquishing his godhood, or that even for a second he does not maintain his perfect sovereign control, but here's what it's expressing. He is a God that condescends. A God that bends down very low to reach us. A God who cares, who feels, who desires closeness. You know, when Jesus condescended to this earth to be born in a manger, this was a unique event. It was not going to be repeated. However, with respect to God's character, it was not something new. It was God being Himself. You remember the incident on Exodus, in Exodus chapter 34? It's right after the golden calf incident of all times. And Moses is in fellowship with God. And he asks of God one of the most precious things of any prayer request in Scripture. He says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Verse 5 and 6, And the Lord descended. He came down. The Lord descended in a cloud. He was veiled, just like Christ would be veiled in a body of flesh. And He stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's a lot of what Jesus did. He came down, he was veiled, he stood with mankind there, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And it says, the Lord passed by before him and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. And how does God give his own name? Right after this horrible judgment, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. An impersonal, distant, unfeeling deity, like the one that the deist would portray, that kind of God could be just and righteous and even holy, and He could execute judgment. But it's only a caring Loving, feeling God that is merciful and long-suffering that can experience grief. Think of our own. Our own imperfect love and care for others opens us up to grief. That's for sure. But what about the holy, pure love of the living God who actually lives inside of you permanently, willingly, condescending to make Himself vulnerable to pain on our behalf on a daily basis? Incredible. Where's the first time you suppose that the Bible mentions grief. Was it Adam and Eve? I'm sure the death of Abel produced some of that, but we're not told anything of their reaction. The Bible just leaves that out. But the first time the word grief, grief, grieve, the first time that word appears under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is found in Genesis 6, verse 6. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. And it grieved Him at His heart. Notice it doesn't say it infuriated Him. Oh, wrath was going to come. Grief is a product of care. Not just for the saved, mind you. Remember the same God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn ye, turn ye from your evil way. Why will you die, O house of Israel? He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance because He's a God that cares. And even at that moment, when it records the grief of God, what was His reaction? A hundred and twenty more years of patience. While the world thumbed their nose at Him, save one family, and God suffered grief. That's the first grief in the Bible. What's the deepest grief found in the Scriptures? Now, was it Moses at the base of Sinai? He was certainly more than a little bothered when he came to imagine coming down from actually dwelling physically in the presence of God. And you come down to the people that you're ministering to, and here they are half naked, dancing in front of an Egyptian calf. I no wonder he broke those tablets. Was the greatest grief in the Bible, was it Abraham ascending Mount Moriah with Isaac following behind, knowing, i got to sacrifice him. How about David crying out? Some of the most distressing words in all the Bible. Would God that I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Well, those are heart-wrenching, no question, but they're not the greatest. The greatest grief found in history was in a garden outside Jerusalem on the night of the Passover nearly 2,000 years ago, where the Son of God sweat great drops of blood because of the weight of our sin that was about to be placed on Himself. And no wonder the prophet Isaiah called Him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did you catch that? Acquainted with grief. It's a companion of his. We sing the song, he had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. In fact, in Matthew 26, 37, speaking of that event, it says, He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful. Now, what word do you suppose that is? Same word of grieve in Ephesians 4.30. He took them and he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Now, what do you suppose should be the most powerful deterrent to sin? Recall with me those three categories. How my sin affects me. How my sin affects others. How my sin affects God. Our natural bent is to think of them in that exact order. You can check yourself, can't you? Some of you can probably think of this week. Here comes some temptation, some struggle, whatever it is. And the mental debate starts. Which one of those three came first into your mind? You see, typically it's over here. This is going to hinder my prayers, hinder my guidance, take away my... Now, now, those are biblical reasons. But they're not the highest reasons. I would submit to you biblically... That order should be exactly the opposite. What's the most mature response, the most God-honoring order? I mean, really, what, biblically, in the New Testament, what does God desire to be our highest reason for obeying Him? I mean, think of your own children if you have them. Let's say here comes your child to you and he says, Mom, Dad, I just want you to know something. I am determined. I'm never going to disobey you again. And he said, boy, that's, that's great, son. Can I ask why? And he said, sure. 
I don't want a thrashing. As simple as that. I don't, I don't want to get grounded. I don't want to lose privileges. I like ice cream. I want to stay up late. I really don't like spankings. I... How many of you would say, praise the Lord, hallelujah? Or would you inwardly hurt? Because what you want for that child is to think higher than that. You want them to think, I don't want to sin. I know what it'll do to me, but beyond that, others. And beyond that, I love God and I want to obey Him and I don't want to displease Him. And mom and dad, I love you and I respect you and I don't want to cause you pain. If you then being evil recognize that, how much more does God? Friends, love is the highest motivation for our obedience to God. What Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, if you don't want discipline, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Sometimes as a preacher, I think of what the Lord said to Peter. Oh, we're commanded in the epistles. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. I know I need to man my post, and I know I need to preach the word of God, but nothing motivates me more in my saner moments than remembering what the Lord told Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep if you love me. Now, Gethsemane, that experience when Jesus sweat the great drops of blood, it was unique. It cannot be repeated and it never will be. But yet He has not changed. His view towards sin, His love for us has not changed. Now, when we're told something like, grieve not the Holy Spirit in a way, It's like saying, don't cause him more Gethsemane. Remember what happened in that garden? The disciples that were privileged enough to hear what he was saying, to observe some of his pain, and it's, it's so much like human nature. To stand there at the threshold of these epochs in history and in our own life and not recognize the magnitude. I'm not condemning them because I surely would have done the same thing. And could they have known how powerful this moment was? But there he begins to be very heavy and to be very sorrowful. And what was his inner circles of disciple? His inner circle, what were they doing? They were sawing logs. They were sleeping. They were oblivious. They were clueless. And oftentimes that's precisely what happens when we sin. We're asleep while he grieves on our behalf. Now, we talked about who or what in life can cause us the greatest grief. Towards the top of the list has to be spouse, child, friend, precious possession. If you are a blood-bought Christian person, what are you to him? Spouse. You are the bride of Christ. When we choose to sin, it's like another stain on the wedding garment. Now, I know all this is cleansed eventually, but practically speaking, it's like unfaithfulness. It causes him to feel the pain of adultery, of a affection for the wrong husband, of running back to the devil for comfort. 
How do you think it made God feel when his covenant people, all the while he knew exactly what he was going to give them? And they turned 14 days' journey into 40 years. And 603,550 men dying in the wilderness, all the while crying out, please let us go back to Egypt because life was wonderful there. But you see, there's a reason why the language is repeated in the Old Testament about Israel's sin. Things like playing the harlot. God was expressing the grief of a husband with an unfaithful wife. And we as his bride... have a capacity to cause that level of grief. You're a spouse. What else are you? You're a child of God. You're His offspring twice over, once by natural birth and creation and once by the new birth. But a choice to sin is a choice to spurn His parenting, to reject His matchless wisdom, to tread His love underfoot, to decide that you know better than your Father which is in heaven... And all the while we trample on his parenting, he's up there preparing a mansion for us in the skies. Does God know something of the hurts of parenting? Sure does. You are his friend. John 15, 14, he told the disciples, ye are my friends. And mind you, that was right before Peter would go out and emphatically proclaim, I don't know him. Who are you talking about? Never heard his name. I think you had somebody else. In Luke twenty-two sixty-one. Right after that event, it says the Lord turned, looked upon Peter. Imagine he's up here in the judgment hall. His crowds thronging, gnashing their teeth. And Peter's probably way back there. Thousands of people. And Peter's standing in the back after he fails. And those eyes turned. They looked right through him. Blood running down his face. Crown of thorns upon his head. The man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, at that moment had eyes for one man. And it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, that look doesn't appear to be a look of anger or threat or frustration. What kind of look do you think that was? Grief. Pain. I mean, what is sin? It's choosing to say, at least for a moment, I don't know him. Never heard of him. Who? Jesus who? We wonder if our sin causes him to feel like David with Ahithophel. Mine own familiar friend, which did eat of my bread hath lifted up his heel against me. You're a spouse. You're a child. You're a friend. You're also his precious, sentimental possession. You know, I mentioned those photo albums. They're not worth a whole lot. Material value. But then again, neither are you and I. Some scientists have broken down the amount of minerals in the human body and it amounts to somewhere around two bucks. But he places infinite value on us. Did he pay a dear price? Oh, yes, he did. Infinite and eternal blood was shed to buy you back from sin's slave market. And every time He looks at us through Christ, we're a reminder, trophy of His grace. 
recipients of His mercy, those over whom the angels of God had rejoiced when He came to repentance. And how do you think He feels when His possession is willingly marred, damaged by iniquity, or stolen away by inordinate lust? I can tell you, Grief. Notice what it says. The Holy Spirit, by Him were sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, most of us have heard that kings in those days, they would stamp letters with their signet ring. It was the king's property. But I'm told there's another historical object lesson that might actually be more fitting and one that would have resonated well with those living in the first century. In those days, oftentimes when a man purchased an object, he would often make a down payment to purchase at a later time. We might know that as layaway. You almost never hear that anymore. But what he would do, he would make a down payment on that object, and then he would be allowed to stamp that thing with his seal. And when that went back on the shelf, what that meant was nobody else can purchase that. It belongs to him. And he's going to come get it on the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the earnest or the down payment of our inheritance. We are sealed, we are marked out for him as his possession. Now take all that we know about grief. All that we've experienced is horrid as it can be. And remember this. Our grief is flawed. And it is finite. It has limitations. But His grief. It's the product of infinite love. Of infinite holiness. which means he feels infinite grief. He feels depths of that that we cannot possibly fathom. I want to close today with a hypothetical question. Some of you have heard it, but I can't think of a better way to close out the message this morning. What if somehow this would not happen, but what if somehow God communicated to you that this week you could sin and face zero personal consequences? Furthermore, you could sin and somehow it wouldn't affect anybody else. The only effect of your sin would be the pain that it causes him. Would that be enough of a deterrent to keep you away from it? Do you love him enough so that that would be motivation enough. Now I get it. These are things we grow in. Trust me. I'm plenty crushed by that question myself. I try to examine the depths of my own heart and sometimes I'm shocked at how passages like this utterly lay me bare. The help's only found if we face the straightforward implications And God isn't just angry over sin. He can be. It's not just external things that He does to react to it. It's actually a condescension where He feels inward agony when His spouse, His child, His friend, and His precious possession turns His back on Him.
Beholding is becoming, right? The more we behold him, the more we see him properly and the more our own lives are purified. Do you know him this morning? And say, well, this is all well and good, but what I've said is of no help if somebody has not truly been saved. I don't mean attend church. I don't mean turn over a new leaf. I don't mean just falling into religion. The devil can do all that. You see, the reason the Bible says you must be born again because our natural bent is to fix ourselves. I up and decided to start going to church sometime. Well, that's nice. It can be. But has there been a supernatural change where you went from darkness unto light? Where you went from trying to save yourself to relying upon the Christ that died in your place? Where you went from making excuses for your evil behavior and comparing yourself with other people to actually submitting to God's assessment of you that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand it. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have you been there? You see, that's a necessary stop if somebody's going to be prepared to really be saved by the blood of Christ. You see, Jesus won't be one idol on your shelf. He won't be another car in your garage. Either He's your Savior or He's your judge. He's one of the two. Which is He to you? The glorious thing is He's willing to save anybody who will come, but He will not save you unless you come His way. Whosoever believeth in Him shall have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, help us. Lord, not just to be cut by what this verse is saying, but to be changed. Lord, you know full well, I don't stand here preaching this as the poster child for right motivations. You know sometimes it's hard to stand up here and preach because... I'm at least enough aware of my own failures. But I pray you'd help us to be more motivated by how our life affects you than anything else. Others are important. You tell us of the effects on self. Those matter. What does that compare with how our love for you ought to make us hate the thought of displeasing you. Help us to be motivated by love. Help us to recognize when we're not. And I pray you'd help us to be holy people. Lord, we're, Christians are already set apart by the blood of Christ. We know that positionally, but help us to walk in holiness. Not to make ourselves shine, not to impress anybody. Because you're worthy. Because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.